So good evening, everyone. As you end your sit, just go ahead and let your body move a little bit and feel yourself come back into motion after not having been moving for the last 20 minutes. And feel your body again. If you need to stand up or stretch in any sort of way, please feel free. And for those of you who joined us um, after we started, um, I'm Michael McCord. I'm the CFO here at San Francisco Zen Center. Um, I know many of you, and um, I'm a, a priest here that um, loves to come to Young Urban Zen. So it's great to have um, all of you here. Um, if any of you want to be on camera, that's perfectly fine. It's great to see your faces. And if you're not in a place where that really works for you, don't feel social pressure to do that. Um, so it's, um, it's great to to be here with you. Um, and if you saw the email that Kodo sent out um, about um, what the topic was tonight, um, the topic um, was um, about the self-help. And a lot of you I've talked um, with you about this, um, but the koan of self-help. And so um, in regard to uh, the, the koan of self-help, the koan would be um, the mystery of. Um, the, um, the something that's perplexing, that's paradoxing that you, you chew on would be a koan. And so we just did this thing called Zazen, um, Zazen, sitting Zen, um, which is the form of meditation that we do here in a Zen temple. And um, it's called an acceptance practice. So as we sit, we call it the school of immovable sitting, where we didn't move during the, the time that we sat. We just sat and whatever came up, we let come up. Our nose itches, we don't scratch it. Um, our eye itches, our hair itches, our, you know, whatever it is, as soon as we create this artificial construct where we aren't supposed to be moving, quote unquote, supposed to be, um, then all of a sudden we'll want to, and we'll notice the desire to. And so this is our um, acceptance practice. It is, um, you have a place you can go for violin practice or for basketball practice, and this is the, uh, the acceptance practice, as we call it, accepting what is happening right now in this body, in this moment, in this time. And so because we call it an acceptance practice, the obvious question would be, well, how do you ever change anything? How do you ever get anything done? How do you ever work on self-improvement? How do you ever make a significant change in the world? How do you ever make a change in an organization? Is self-help intrinsically opposed to an acceptance practice? What are we talking about acceptance? Are we just going to sit there and let things um, you know, degrade around us and that's all that we're concerned about is just, okay, but I accept it. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. But it is a paradox of, and I call it the koan of self-help. Self-help as a term that we, we know in the Western world as far as, you know, you, you buy a book or you engage in a course. I'm not so good at this. I would like to be better at that. And so I am going to engage in this 10-week process and then I will, you know, be better at thus and such. Self-help. Um, but that, is, that, is that necessarily opposed to um, an acceptance practice? So that's what I want to talk about this evening. And I want to start off with a statement from the founder of, of the temple here 
in San Francisco, Suzuki Roshi back in the 60s. And um, this statement you might have heard before, which is, you are perfect just as you are, and each of you could use a little improvement. You are perfect just as you are, and each of you could use a little improvement. Now, was he contradicting himself? Was he talking out both sides of his mouth? Well, actually, a lot of things that we hold in the Zen practice is both and. Many things rise up together at the same time. And so um, I'll come back to that statement more at the end. But this was what we just in, in, engaged in was the school of immovable sitting, our acceptance practice. And that's what our Zazen shows us, is how I'm inclined to want to change things. As soon as I tell myself I can't change things, I'm not supposed to move. It's called the school of immovable sitting. As soon as I tell myself I'm not supposed to be moving, an artificial construct, and especially if you do it with other people, where you can notice if other people are moving or not. Um, and then you can, you know, notice yourself thinking about, well, I don't want to move because I don't want other people to see me or how that person just moved and I'm sitting way more still than them. And, you know, the, the whole artificial construct starts happening in this school of a movable sitting where you're not supposed to move one bit. Um, this all of a sudden starts to show us how much we want to change things. We become aware of the fact that we can't. And then we really want to pick and choose. We really want to adjust something. Now, now, I can sit there for 90 minutes if I get engrossed in a wormhole in Wikipedia and not move for 90 minutes and forget about it. But um, as soon as I'm bringing the attention and awareness to my body, then all of a sudden I notice, wait a second, I'm not supposed to be moving. You know, it's like that game I think I've mentioned here before that you can play with a three-year-old that just makes them laugh, where you say, okay, on the count of three, we're not going to think about elephants. One, two, before you get to three, they're already laughing, you know, because they're thinking about elephants. You know, you've already set up the, the thing not to do. And so we set up this artificial construct and we sit and we see our inclination to adjust the world and how I might never really be satisfied. Adjusting ourselves and trying to make things better can be a beautiful thing to learn how to do. And it can also be an addiction or something that we cling on to. It can be our way of controlling the planet. If I am just a better Michael in 10 different areas, then I will be content. Then I will be satisfied. If I can just adjust my knee a little bit here, and if I can just scratch my eyebrow, then my sitting will be okay. It will, then, then, then I'll be fine, you know? So it's one of the th reasons why we create monasteries. And if you ever go to Tassajara, which is out in the middle of nowhere, and you have a, a place where you have no keys and no phone and no wallet and no lock on your door, no bills to pay, you don't even go shopping. Other people make your food and you sit. And in that area, there's so little to pick and choose about. There's so little choice that you really need to make. Most of your day from 3.50 in the morning to 9.15 at night is regulated for you in like either five minute or 30 minute intervals of what you're doing during that period of time. And yet the desire to make things better and to improve um, and to change things 
just overwhelms a person after a period of time. And you, and you realize that, that I'm used to trying to order my universe in order for me to feel more content, for me to feel more satisfied, to feel more safe, that it is actually has momentum inside me. I'll never forget one time, this was just hilarious, but people come and go from the monastery between three month um, periods of time where we sit. And whenever somebody would leave, and the cabins at Tassajara where the students live, they are not glamorous, you know? Sometimes the windows don't really shut all that, that, that well. Um, there could be, you know, cracks in the walls, um, can be cold, no heat. Um, but then someone would leave the monastery and you'd think, you know, I wonder, I wonder if their closet has better hangers. I wonder if, if they've got a better lamp. Hmm. You know, there's just, there's, 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 there's no end to, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why the monasteries are set up that way is that you get to see the real base nature of um, always wanting to, you know, it's always wanting to, you know, change things a little bit. And so when you're in, you know, high school, if I do really well, I'll get into a good college and then, then I'll have made it. But then when you're in college, of course, you know, then you really want to do really well in college to either get into a really great grad school or to get into some superb internship. But then once you graduate from that, then you have the job, but then you have the job, but then you've got to work your way up and you've got to prove yourself. And then eventually, eventually I'll have like a really good job, but then I need to have a partner. You know, I need to have some sort of like personal life. So then we need to work on the relationship, but maybe I'll want to have kids. But then, you know, maybe I'll do some couples workshops and I'll have some kids, but then we'll, we'll, we'll want to buy a house and we'll have, need to, you know, invest a little bit of money. And, and then you realize this is actually an endless game that is going to keep going until I am dead. And this is um, something that never ends. When am I going to arrive at that place where I can exhale? When am I going to arrive at the place when I can exhale? There is nothing wrong with self-help. In fact, it can be tremendous to come across um, a habit that you instill in yourself and you um, make um, things a little better for yourself. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, a student was telling me about this book, Atomic Habits, that sounded like a really interesting book. Um, that I'm curious to, to look into. You might have heard of it. Great habits can be very, very helpful. But if you've ever been around an endlessly picky person, or if you yourself have ever been an endlessly picky person, or if you have ever gotten caught on that wheel of, I need to accomplish this and accomplish that, and never, ever feeling like I arrive, then something there has gotten out of balance. Remember that quote from Suzuki Roshi? You're perfect just as you are, and each of you could use a little improvement. I oftentimes in the past understood the part about I could use a little improvement. That, that, that rung true to me. I can use a little improvement. But what about the I am perfect just as I am? Okay, now that, that, that just seems like someone is buttering me up, like someone's trying to make me feel good. Because I know that I'm not perfect just as I am. But I believe he was sincere. 
And the reason I believe that he was sincere is that it's not about a destination. It is about how it is held, how it is held. Is it held with spaciousness and love? Is it held with acceptance? Not approval, but acceptance. It's a way something is held. A baby can tell how you are holding it. A friend can tell how you are holding them in your heart when they're going through a very difficult time. You can tell when someone has space for you and when they don't have space for you. And you can tell when you don't have space for you, when what you are doing is not good enough. Now, all day long, we come across things that we need to improve. So it's not that we just sit there and we accept things and we just let the world go on as it is. Every day, we tend to eat three meals. Now, if I noticed that I was hungry, I might think, I need to eat something that will improve my situation. Well, of course I notice that and then I eat and there's nothing wrong with noticing that something needs some improvement and then thinking about what might happen to make that improved and then doing something about it. But it is how it is held. It is the attitude with which it is done. And do I eat more than I need? Do I eat as an escape? Do I eat compulsively? Do I starve myself? Do I hold out and then binge eat? Do I do things that take away from the fact that I just had one primal need? And that was to improve the fact that I needed to eat. And the questions around whether or not I'm doing it in a way that is spacious, that is with love, have to do with things like, how does my body feel when I reflect on me accomplishing my goals and the things that I'm working on? How does my body feel? And generally, when I am working on my goals, am I tight or am I loose? Am I spacious? And am I spacious with others? I realized one time, and this just really hit me as a conundrum, I realized I do some of my best work while I'm ignoring other people's feelings. I do some of my best work while I ignore what other people need. I do some of my best work when I am selfish. And I realized that how my body actually felt during that time wasn't good. How my body felt during that time was actually fairly tight like I was running on one of those hamster wheels and never quite getting to the giblet. And if I did ever get to the place where I wanted to get the giblet, if you will, it only lasted in a, fle a very fleeting sort of way. And the momentum was just off to the next project. One of the first, um, oh, the first abbess of San Francisco Zen Center was Blanche Hartman. And she was from the South and she um, was very much involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s and um, found herself in San Francisco as a student in the late 60s here in, in San Francisco Zen Center and was very much into the protest movement and um, around many um, social justice causes. And she found herself one time in Berkeley 
in a line with other young people staring down the National Guard. And the National Guard was standing there with their guns and the students were standing there and they were yelling and pointing their fingers. And she realized this, this huge feeling of anger and this sense of self and other. Those people are over there and I'm over here. Now, what she was protesting might have been a very valuable cause. But in that moment, she realized in her practice that she had gone, gone so far down the end result, the end result of a self-help um, program, the end result of an accomplishment of a goal, the end result of wanting to change things in a certain way became so much the focus that the way that it was held was unhealthy for her body. And that she felt like those people over there are the enemy and I am right and I am tense and I am tight and I am angry. And I have felt this way all day. And so she took a year off of protesting and got more in touch with herself and how she was sitting and how she was accepting what was going on and what her motivations were for protesting. And what maybe she was channeling through trying to accomplish the different goals that she was trying to accomplish. It's not that the goals were necessarily wrong, but the effect on her as a human being was not healthy. And it was making her wound. It was making her tight. It was making her angry. And it was somehow or another out of balance. How does my body feel when I am working on my goals? Do I feel a sense of desperation, uh, a constant filling of an endless hole kind of feeling, the Sisyphus sort of pushing a rock up a hill endlessly sort of feeling? Am I ever content in the middle of my projects, in the middle of accomplishing something big? Do I feel a sense of ease ever? How it is held? Sometimes I recommend for students to do a body journal and to get in touch with how I feel at different times of the day. There's one that you can do, which is to take the two big significant moments of any 12 hour period of time and to write about them. And when I say significant moments, significant as they felt in the body, whether it was an elation of joy, whether it was a bunch of fear, whether it was anxiety, whether it was just being energized about something, whether it was just drinking too much coffee, whatever it was, the body experience and being in touch with what that felt like. What does it feel like to be me in these different situations? One question I ask myself sometimes when I'm going toward goals and, and much of this is speaking um, you know, to myself, I really like goals. And I really get energized about big goals and accomplishing things. Um, it does energize me. And one question that I was asked that I find to be very helpful is how invigorated do I feel about helping others reach their goals in comparison to how invigorated I feel toward reaching mine? Does it, does it feel... Um, as energized, as invigorated, as, you know, or is there something there that is going on that is um, propelling a, a, a clutching inside me 
and a, a sense of I will arrive if I just hold my breath long enough. And then maybe there will be some external value or worth placed upon me from having accomplished something. Am I as invigorated about other people accomplishing their goals as I am about mine? And right afterward, there's this other statement that comes up, which is, which statement do I gravitate more toward? If they were announcing me to a group of my peers, maybe even people that I would want to be accepted by, would I want myself to be introduced as Michael accomplished these things? Or would I want them to say, Michael is very kind? Would I want them to say, Michael has a great impact on the people around him? And maybe I didn't really accomplish that much. How does that feel emotionally? in regard to how I hold accomplishment. In the monastery, we have these things called gattas, and they're, they're statements that you say. Um, there's one outside the bathhouse at Tassajara, and you're going to go take a bath, but you stop and you say the gatta. Usually there's a little altar there to remind you of something, some flowers, a rock, a statue. And in many of the monasteries in Japan, and also here at San Francisco Zen Center, we have a little gata and a small altar right outside the bathroom. Now, there's never a time, well, there's rarely a time during the day that you're kind of more impatient to get and accomplish your goal than when you um, have a goal of going to the bathroom. And so you're going to the bathroom, and of course, what they do in the Japanese monasteries is they put these little things right there, and just, just to catch you, you know, it's just like a little stop. And you stop, and it only takes 10 seconds, you know, usually you can wait 10 seconds, you know, and then you, you say the thing, you know, you try not to have anybody around you notice how impatient you're bowing or what have you, you know, and, um, and then, then you go in and use the restroom. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, to me, every time that happens, I think about myself and accomplishment. I'm like, you know, I, what if I had some sort of gata that was bigger in scope in regard to how I'm holding this moment that allowed me to pause and to remind myself of why I'm here and what I'm doing? Usually the gata has something to do with being in my body, being in this moment, because if there's a time when I might get, you know, really focused and get just kind of, you know, that's a, that's a time sense of, you know, desperation, not, not time for other people, not time for other stuff, focused on me, what Michael wants. I stop and I say those things and then move on to the next moment. There's an endless number of things that this world could be improved by. And there's an endless number of things that I could embrace to improve about myself. But that statement from Suzuki Roshi, you are perfect just as you are and you each couldn't use a little improvement. The first part of that is how he is holding us. That is how he is holding us. 
as people that have flaws, that have weaknesses. And we did not put together project plans to have those flaws or weaknesses. We have them. Most of them we just came by honestly, but we have them. And that in itself is being accepted, totally accepted by Suzuki Roshi in the beginning of his statement. You are perfect just as you are. That is how he is holding us. And he is teaching us how to hold ourselves in that same sort of way. I can't go out and start on a long path of improving something else until I know how to hold myself. I can't get in a place that's so emotionally charged like um, a rally like Blanche Hartman did until I have settled with myself, until I have some level of acceptance about my flaws. How I hold those flaws is all the key as to whether or not I will go to war with myself or whether or not I will slowly integrate those things and to hold them gently. You would never take a child and look at them and they have a weakness in some area, just like any child, just like any of us. And you look at this six-year-old child that isn't so good at something, whether it's art or math or social skills or riding their bike or whatever it is. And how would you want that six-year-old to engage that project plan to get better at riding their bike? With tightness, with criticism, the very first piece of it is you would want them to feel accepted. You would want them to feel accepted for who they are. You would want them to feel like they're okay. That's where it starts. And so that's what we started this, this, this evening with, was a sit, an acceptance practice. How we hold ourselves and all of our weaknesses and all the things that come up. It's why we have a sitting practice, is we learn how to hold ourselves with spaciousness and with love. And from there, we can start to see how to act. It's not that the goals themselves are evil or wrong or bad or what have you, but they can become ways of just endlessly distracting ourselves from the very base root of the fact that we have not started off with self-acceptance. And that's where it all begins. And so the koan of self-help is one that each of us has to answer for ourselves. Is how will I actually go about improving things, the little things in life, like feeding myself or like my big goals or like bigger societal goals? How will I engage in these things in a way that is healthy and balanced where I can see because unfortunately, the more talented of a person you are, the more likely you will be to push a square peg into a round hole, accomplishing something, but maybe not in a way that really works for you or works for the people around you or even ultimately works at all. How we hold ourselves, you are perfect just as you are. And each of you could use a little improvement. <laughs>